1: The trial of the NHS nurse Lucy Letby is continuing at Manchester Crown Court.
2: She wept as she told the court that she was devastated at being accused of murdering
4: seven young babies and the attempted murder of 10 others.
2: Asked by her defence lawyer if she'd done anything wrong, no, she replied.
4: She told the jury that she'd only ever done her best to care for the babies.
2: This is a podcast about one of the most anticipated criminal trials for years. It involves the most shocking of allegations, the alleged murders and attempted murders of tiny, premature babies at the hands of a neonatal nurse whose very job it was to look after them.
0: Lucy Letby is on trial at Manchester Crown Court, accused of killing seven newborns and injuring ten more at the Countess of Chester Hospital in Cheshire.
2: The jury has now been sitting for almost ten months. The prosecution and defence have finished outlining their cases and the jury have been deciding whether Lucy Letby is guilty or not guilty of the 22 charges that she faces.
0: I'm Liz Hull, Northern Correspondent for the Mail. I will be in court to report on
2: the case as it develops. And I'm Caroline Cheatham, a broadcast journalist. Every week, we'll examine what's happened and bring you the details behind the headlines. This is the trial of Lucy Letby. So, Liz, the jury have now been deliberating for 14 days. Today would
0: have been the 15th day of deliberation, but the jury aren't sitting today. So they're back again tomorrow,
2: and of course we'll bring you any updates as soon as we can. And as we've been saying over the past few weeks, there's nothing we can do but to carry on waiting.
0: Welcome to episode 49, more of our best guests. (laughs)
2: So as we've told you in previous episodes, we won't do anything in this podcast to put the integrity of a fair trial at risk. So while the jury continue their deliberations, we're limited in what we can say. What we can't do is discuss anything that's happened in court or recap any of the evidence that we've heard over the last 10 months. So instead this week, we're going to bring you some
0: more of our favourite moments from the fantastic guests we've interviewed over the previous 48
2: episodes. We hope you enjoy them. In episode nine, we spoke to former Northwest Crown prosecutor Nazir Afsal about the importance of open justice and if filming in UK courtrooms could one day be permitted.
1: One way of tackling public confidence or lack of public confidence, but mm. well, there's only one way really, it's transparency. If you shy a lie on something, you get to see what it's like. And also people do change their behaviours. You know, the, the public gallery, you'll find generally they're empty in most cases, yeah. the vast majority of the time. People can't be bothered or can't afford to go into town to watch it. And yet the court is meant to be public. It's mm. meant to be open to you.
0: You know, unless, unless you're involved in a case, most people, most ordinary people don't set foot in a courtroom unless they get called for jury service. And there is a bit of, I don't know, you see witnesses come and give evidence who look absolutely terrified because they've no idea yeah. what to expect.
1: Lawyers and judges don't like the idea of streaming. I wonder why. Right. Hey? uh, The point is, they are operating, being paid for by you, the taxpayer. And therefore, we, the taxpayers, should see what's being done in our name. You know, there used to be that saying, justice should be seen. It's a no-brainer for me. You know, I've already had conversations with the Labour Party on this, because they're preparing their manifesto, if there is going to be an election in a year or two. And, you know, I said to them, the one thing that would make the biggest difference, the public's view of justice, and make it as accessible as possible, would be to allow streaming. It has to be subject to protections, but in the main, the most important thing you could do to make the justice system belong to us would be to allow us to see it.
0: So, what's Akira's view on the that, behavior? Nazir? Are you going to give us a scoop?
1: I haven't spoken to Akira about it, but I've spoken to his team, and they are very open Ooh. to it, considering it.
0: And the use of these new CVP links in COVID, it just proved that it, the technology is possible.
1: We should have, you know, in effect, digital courts. We should allow people to see what's going on. You should be allowed to give evidence from your bedroom or from your workplace.
2: It normalises it, doesn't it, as well, then, I suppose?
1: There are all sorts of answers to all of the questions that people pose.
2: Part of the reason for the podcast, obviously we're pushing a few legal boundaries, I suppose, by covering an ongoing trial on a podcast, but we felt it was important because of exactly what you just said around giving witnesses a voice, giving victims a voice, giving the process a voice, because you've got that thing with a long trial where we, media, go into the beginning, opening statement, rock up a couple of times in the middle, and then come for the the defence, and then at the end, and, and actually the detail of the process is lost.
1: The Americans have got this. The default is that all cases will be visible.
0: We know the podcast has developed a really big following globally, but it's particularly popular in Australia. So when Melbourne-based court reporter Karen Sweeney let us know she was listening, we got her on in episode 33.
5: I'm Karen Sweeney. I am a journalist court reporter for Australian Associated Press, which is Australia's version of the Press Association.
2: Have you come across any sort of similar thing in in
5: Australia in terms of covering a court case in this way? I think the only time I've come across it, do you remember the Teacher's Pet podcast? There's a follow-up podcast that covers the trial from week to week. I listened to Teacher's Pet a
0: few years ago, obviously before the trial, so I was like, when that podcast came out on the trial, I was like, I'm all in on this one. But that is the only time I've ever known another podcast do a live trial.
2: Maybe it's because the teacher's pet podcast was the first to follow an ongoing trial that people in Australia are also really engaged in our podcast.
5: I heard about it from a, another court reporter colleague who was living in the UK when Lucy Letby was arrested and so she had known about it then she was working as a journalist there and that's how she'd come across it. And we were talking about various podcasts and things in in our, we have a a court office where all the court reporters sit together. And she was talking about it one day and sort of a few of us got on board and now you've got some very loyal listeners.
2: For us covering courts here, which very rarely have a press room these days, it's really interesting to hear that reporters from competing organisations there are all based in a room together.
5: It's fantastic. Honestly, the, the camaraderie among court reporters is like, no other specialty area of reporting I've ever come across. You know, crime reporters a little bit, you're all sitting in the same gutters at the same crime scene. But court in particular, we spend more time together than we do with our actual colleagues from our workplaces. What's the longest trial you've covered, Karen? Two former homicide detectives in Sydney who were charged with murder. Every part of the crime was caught on CCTV and these were homicide detectives. The only part of the murder that wasn't Captured was the actual shooting. The three men walk into a storage unit, two men walk out carrying a body. It's, you know, the prosecution argued that it was one or the other, each argued that it was the other one. There was, you know, the meeting at the pub where they collect the victim, the driving him to the storage unit, there was the disposing of the body afterwards. They'd been to a hardware store and bought rope and a tub, and, you know, they'd driven the body to one of their homes, loaded him in a boat, and home CCTV footage captured the body in the back of the boat as they towed it to the boat ramp, and then Tried to dump the body off the back of the boat and it washed back in and was spotted by a surfer. These were, back in the day, very high profile, very well-known homicide detectives who potentially thought they were above the law and that no one was going to catch them. Made for a fascinating trial to cover, though.
2: One of the UK's most prominent criminologists joined us for a chat in episode 13. Professor David Wilson is from Birmingham City University.
6: I actually joined the prison service at 23 straight out of Cambridge University. I literally finished my PhD, Viva, on the Friday, and on the Monday, I was the assistant governor under training at Onewood Scrubs. So I started by becoming intrigued about crime and punishment. I didn't study criminology. I studied history and philosophy, mm. but I became intrigued about crime and punishment because I played rugby and in one particular game I was a winger. I got fouled pretty badly by an opponent and when we both got up from the ground, I punched him in the nose and broke his nose. And <laughs> oh, everybody everybody at the time, and later in the bar, so did he, congratulated me for what I had done because he had fouled me. It just so happened that same week in the town of Cambridge a young man who was the same age as me who committed an offence with no greater use of violence than the violence I had used on the rugby pitch was sent to Borstal for two years for punching somebody when the pubs were being emptied at closing time in the town of Cambridge. And he got sent to Borstal for two Mm. years. I wanted to know why my violence was different to his violence. And so it was that philosophical basis that encouraged me to become interested in crime and punishment. And then I did the civil service exams, then went through a recruitment process and literally became the assistant governor. My first ever job was assistant governor Mm. under training at Onewood Scrubs.
0: Not just any old prison.
6: I always say I survived that process as being a, a very young and rather privileged and naive young man by being able to play rugby back mm. to rugby. I got picked for the wormwood scrub side and scored two tries in my first game. It was a kind of socialization process that allowed me to survive what was a very difficult baptism of fire yeah. where I literally was out of my debt.
2: Did you learn anything from when you became an assistant governor and then a governor about Justice and the experience you and that other boy had shared or not shared, because your experiences were so very different. What did it teach you?
6: Oh, how important class is within the criminal justice system. Mm. You know, our prisons are filled today not with public school boys with qualifications. You know, the average reading age of the sentenced male prison population is seven. They are functionally yeah. illiterate.
1: Mm.
6: Most have been thrown out of school. That incident was merely a window into how class um, privilege and prejudice operate.
0: He was the editor of McNay's Essential Law for Journalists, which is basically the Bible that Caroline and I abide by whenever we're reporting news stories. He's now passed on the editorship to Jill Phillips from The Guardian, but he told us in episode 10 how laws govern all reporting, including anyone writing on the internet.
4: Law does affect what's published on the internet. You can be fined or jailed for what you publish on the internet. One of the changes in the law is how... Internet publication affects uh, what can be reported, and the laws change to some extent to cover internet publication. Judges are, are, are worried when a crown court trial begins uh, whether the jury will do its own research onto the internet, and juries are very firmly warned against doing their own research. So the, yes, the book does cover the dangers of what you publish on the internet. Although obviously there's a difference between what a journalist knows mm. about the law and what the man or woman in the street knows about the law they may break the law without realizing they're doing it
2: that was the distinction i was making really not that your book doesn't cover the the internet but doesn't probably cover the people who don't read the book or don't train as journalists or don't understand that that law is really really important for loads of reasons
4: well people have been fined for identifying you know victims of rape on the internet but of course that's illegal yeah yeah there so may be schools could do a little bit more if they're doing anything at all and when they tell people about social media and the dangers of it, which of course are manifold, (laughs) they could point out that some things are illegal.
0: So obviously, Mark, the podcast is covering a live trial, which is challenging and terrifying in in joint measure (laughs) for us. It's really interesting that we're doing this summary of each week's evidence but we're acutely aware that this is a multi-multi-million pound trial and we've got to be very careful with whatever we do to make sure that we're reporting it correctly. Just to explain to the listener for us, would you, what rules govern our reporting of a live trial, I suppose?
4: Yeah, sure. The two main things in the forefront of the reporter's mind, apart from any particular reporting restriction about who can be identified, it's the law of defamation and the law of contempt. They both require reporting of cases to be fair and accurate. And obviously, accuracy is self-explanatory. Fairness means that the reader is not misled by the report. So if a reporter makes a mistake and it's a bad mistake, it could be that someone in the trial could sue them for defamation. For example, if they say someone was convicted when they're acquitted,
1: Mm, then obviously that's a
4: terrible mistake. But just misquoting witnesses or indeed judges could mean that the witness or judge could sue for defamation. Contempt is a different priority. That's to maintain the integrity of the justice process to make sure that people get fair trials, for example, and and that justice is done. What is the most dangerous, I think, is to write into a trial report extraneous material, something that was not said at the trial. And the trouble with a complex trial, as you, you know well yourself, is you have a lot of information in your head about this case which may not be related to the jury because it's not appropriate. They don't need to know it for the trial. But if you, by mistake, put that material into the trial report before the verdict, and there's any danger that the jury either read it or could be told about it by their families or friends, then that could jeopardize the trial. And would there have been instances, the most famous uh, incident was in 2001 when a trial involving Leeds footballers was abandoned. They're accused of violence to a man of Asian heritage outside a a nightclub. And the judge had ruled that no evidence should be given that this was a racial attack. But the Sunday Mirror, at a time when the jury was still considering its verdict, published an interview with the victim's father, in which he said it was a, a racist attack. And that meant the trial was abandoned.
0: It cost the Sunday Mirror... Quite a lot of money. Didn't it, it
4: did, yes. They were fined, uh, I think it was £75,000 contempt, but the editor resigned as a consequence, Conan Myler. So it cost him his job. And the cost of the abandoned trial, because there had to be a second trial, the cost of the first trial was over a million pounds. After that, the government passed a law, which is in the Courts Act 2003, saying that if there was serious misconduct, in effect causing a trial to be aborted, whoever had committed the serious misconduct could be required to pay the cost of the abandoned trial. We yeah. should say that the Leeds footballer, Lee Bowyer, was acquitted of, of the charges and the other one, Jonathan Woodgate, was acquitted of the main charge but a, but a convicted of a fray.
2: Louise Tickle is a campaigning journalist who's been instrumental in making the family courts more transparent. She told us in episode 21 of the podcast that a new pilot scheme which allows journalists to report proceedings in the family courts for the first time was a crucial step forward.
3: Journalists have been allowed to go into private hearings in family courts since 2009, but there hasn't been very much point in us going because a law that was enacted in 1960 essentially said you can't report anything that goes on in there because if you do, it's a contempt of court, punishable by a potentially unlimited fine. And the other thing that you can't do is you can't... Identify any of the people who are involved in the family court proceedings until they come to an end, until there's a final order. And when you take those two bits of law together, essentially it means that you can't produce anything as a journalist that would help a reader or a listener relate to the people or
2: understand their problems. For people who have never had any dealings with the family court, can you just walk us through the sort of range and extent of cases that are dealt with by the family court? which therefore might give people a sense of just how important it is now that journalists being allowed in may well lift a veil on on a lot of this.
3: There are often cases that are heard in family courts where potentially somebody might have been found not guilty of an offence in the criminal courts because that standard of proof, beyond reasonable doubt, hasn't been able to be reached, but where, for instance, nevertheless, their children who might have been affected by their crime, are taken off them in family courts on a much lower standard of proof. And so you can be found not guilty of something in a criminal court, but still lose your kids in a family court. And the fact that these two things are happening, I think, sounds bizarre to lots of people, and they don't understand it because we can't really explain it or why it's done. You know, there is a good reason why there are restrictions on reporting in family courts. I think the restriction on naming people is the right thing because people don't go to family courts because they are there necessarily as criminals. They're often at the most vulnerable, painful part of their life. Their
0: family's broken down, their children are in crisis, they're in crisis. Yeah, I mean, serious decisions are made, aren't they, about, you know, people having their children taken into care, victims of domestic violence, all sorts of really serious, often kind of traumatic events that happen to ordinary people that in a criminal court would be splashed all over the newspapers because it's in the public interest that these cases are reported. But like you said, they're, they're so serious, some of these cases, but they've been held behind closed doors. The state in family courts exerts
3: really draconian powers. Like you said, Liz, you know, your relationship, your, your legal relationship with your children can be extinguished in law by a family court judge when a child is placed for adoption. You can have... Just as a private individual, if your relationship splits up and it's very, very acrimonious and you end up, you know, in highly litigious court hearings, you can have your child removed from you and placed with the other parent with no right to see them on occasion. Really big things happen out of sight and to date, really kind of out of mind and out of any public understanding.
2: That's it for episode 49. Liz and I will continue to be at court until the jury's decision is made and they announce their verdicts. We've no idea how
0: long that'll take but we'll bring it to you as soon as it happens so thanks so much for bearing with
2: us. You can give us a rating and you can share the podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Lucy Letby Trial or follow me at Radio Caroline or send us an email at thetrialoflucyletby at gmail.com See you then.